Amen, amen. Thank you so much, Cody, and the worship team for leading us this morning. And y'all, it is so great to see all of you here this morning at Westside Baptist Church. I'm excited for today for numerous reasons. One, I'm excited because this is the first time I've ever worn a polo to preach before. So it's kind of a new feeling for me, but this message is sponsored by Westside Baptist Church, if you can see what's up here. Um, actually, the, one of the people that we get a lot of our shirts from, they sent me and Braden just a free shirt, which always means they want you to like it and they get more to buy it, right? Uh, they sent it for us. And since we have the prayer and information meetings today regarding our renovation, I figured that I would wear it today. So, uh, but I'm excited for that other reason, is today we are getting a chance to think about what would God have us to do with our building, with renovating the, the building, with renovating our our church, and other areas as well. And as many of you know, today we have prayer and information meetings at 3 and 4.30 and 7, and then tomorrow at 5 o'clock and 7. And, and during this time, uh, we've been working with a group called the Kentucky Baptist Convention, but called Alan Witham, uh, who has his own uh, consulting firm, if you will, to help us as we look to, to financially walk through this and to see how we can steward our resources uh, in order to be able to, to bring God glory through our buildings and our space. Now, I want to begin just by asking a few questions that he asked us and lead into the main discussion we're going to be having this morning and what we're going to be preaching through. So one of the things that Alan Witham is asking me, our staff, our renovation team, and our whole church, he says, I'd love for everybody to ask these two questions. What would sacrificial giving look like for my family and me? And how can or should me and my family financially contribute to this renovation? Now, over the last several months, Emily and I, my wife and I, have been talking through these things and praying through these things. And one of the things that, that they've asked us to do is on this Sunday, the week of the prayer and information meetings, is actually talk about how can we discern God's will in our life regarding stewardship. Now, while we, we could just talk about that specifically, I'm actually going to broaden the discussion a little bit. And today I just want to ask a question that I'm sure many of us have wondered before or thought about before, and it's simply this. How can we understand God's will for our lives? How can we discern God's will for our lives just in general? I believe if it comes to stewardship, if it comes to your time, if it comes to direction, God uses the same means to lead us and guide us to where he wants us to go. And so the title of the sermon this morning is simply Discerning God's Will. How can you know it? And how can you know how to walk in his will? In order to answer that question, we're going to walk through four questions, because if you know me, to answer one, it's best to break it down and walk through it in four different ones. So we're going to answer four different questions this morning as we answer that one question, how can we discern God's will in our lives? The first question we're going to look at is this. Do you realize that God has a will for your life? <clears throat> Do you realize that God has a will for your life? There's something that God desires for you. If you would open up to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be in Ephesians 2 and Romans 12 for the most of this sermon this morning. But Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to begin by looking at what is God's will for our lives? Can we know God's will for our lives. And before that, we're going to answer this question. Do you realize that God does indeed have a will for your life? In Ephesians chapter 2, it's probably most known for the first nine verses. The first nine verses break down the gospel as well as any other passage in all of the New Testament. And Paul simply says this. He says, remember that you used to be dead in your sins and your trespasses. You used to live your own way used to follow the way of the world that is around you, living just like everybody else, living the course of this world, living after the devil's ways himself. Now, many question, what do you mean we're living after the devil? Well, well, the devil is the father of all lies, and every lie is just a, every sin is just a lie. So whenever you follow sin, it's essential you're following after the way of the devil. His point is all of us are born with a sinful nature. 
living our own way, walking our own way, doing life as we would choose to do it. The issue with that is Isaiah 59.2 says our sin creates a barrier between us and God. In other words, because we sin, it creates a separation between us and him. And the bad part of this is if we die with that separation still intact, then we spend all of eternity away from God who created us, who made us. But in verse 4, we see one of the, what I've heard called one of the big buts of Scripture. Verse 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the love with which he loved us, he sent Jesus Christ. And through Jesus, he took our sin on his back. He died in our place that we might have life in him. He paid the penalty of our sin in Jesus, and he can release us from the power of sin in our lives. He says all we must do is repent, place our faith in him. It's not by our own works that we get saved, but it's by faith in Jesus Christ, wholeheartedly placing your faith in him. 2 Peter chapter 3 says that it is God's desire that all people would reach repentance, that all of us would reach a point in our lives where we recognize we go our own way, we do life our own way, and turn from that and place our faith in Jesus. That's the first will of God, is that all of us would be saved. It's for salvation. But in the context of what we're talking about today, what about after that? You know, I think oftentimes we we either just naturally think this way. We think that salvation is the end goal. Friends, salvation is not the end goal. It's not get saved, and now I just can get to go to heaven whenever I die. Salvation is not the end goal. There's a greater goal than that. That's why you see God's words say you're not just saved from something, you're saved for something. There's something that you are being saved to do, which is where we get this incredible text this morning, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Look at it with me. And we're going to break this down and soak in it for a little while. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want you to think about this verse. Many people have heard this verse. Some of you in the room maybe have memorized this verse. I want you to stop and think about what Paul just said. He says, for we are his workmanship. Y'all, the we here is believers. It's those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why later on he says created in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ are his workmanship. This word workmanship comes from the Greek word poema, poema, which sounds a lot like poem because that's where we get our word. It's this idea of a work of art, something that God has worked together. He has pieced together. You could say it's his masterpiece. So read that again like that. We are his workmanship. The church of Jesus Christ is his masterpiece. This word is only used in one other spot, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where it's talking about creation and how God used his handiwork to make creation. We get the idea of that in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. I'll have it for you on the screen. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So what it's saying there is that creation shows that God's hands were at work. It shows what God has done. Creation is his handiwork. And in the same way that creation is his handiwork, we see Paul is saying the new creation, believers in Jesus, are his workmanship. In other words, creation is his handiwork, but believers are his masterwork. His masterwork is most exemplified in those who are followers of him. That's why we have passages like 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are in Christ Jesus, then you are a new creation. 
a new work that God says is his master work. It means that he put most time and energy into this work. Y'all know as well as I do, if you make something or if you create something, you don't typically create something to throw it away or to put it in the attic. You create something to use it for something, right? And this is the point that Paul is making. Go back to the text again. He says, for we are his workmanship, his works of art, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus. Notice what for. Four good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, we are not saved by our works, absolutely not. But we are absolutely saved for good works. I love one pastor, his name is Tony Morita, he was a professor of mine. He just has a way with words. I love how he says this, and I have it for you on the screen. He says, works are not the root of our salvation, but they are the fruit of our salvation. And if there is no fruit, we need to go back to the root, right? That's the point, is salvation does not, is not by our works, but whenever we come to faith in Christ, we are saved for good works. Literally, believers in Jesus are new creations in Christ who are created with a purpose. Now think about that. Jesus says that his church, the people who are in him, are a new creation that are his masterpiece that he seeks to use to bring his glory to the world. But that's why the Bible speaks in such shocking terms. You, you are dead to this old person. You are alive in this new person. You, you used to be like this, but now you are like this. You are a new creation in Christ, and your sole purpose in your life is to bring God glory, to live in such a way that people see the masterwork of Jesus and what he can do, to bring someone who used to be like how I once was before I knew Jesus to who I am now because of Jesus. He does that in each believer's life to change them, to show what God's glory can do in someone's life. We're his masterwork. And notice how he puts this. Not only are followers his masterwork that he created for good works, but he did this beforehand. Before any of us were ever even in existence, he created good works for you to walk in before you set foot on this planet. I want you to stop and think about that. Think about that. I love the way R. Kent Hughes says it here. I'll have it for you on the screen. He says, every follower of Christ has an eternally designed job description that includes the task, the ability, and also known as spiritual gifts, and the place to serve. Think about that. Friends, before you ever existed, God's desire for you is that you would know him. Whenever you come to know him, what God says is you are a part of my masterpiece, my master work. I prepared works for you to do before you even existed, that you might walk in them. Just pause and think about this. Those who are redeemed in Christ were given a purpose before their existence, were redeemed for good works, and God wants us to walk in them. I'm sure many, if not most people, are familiar with the term FOMO, which is simply short for fear of missing out. This word, I believe, originated in 2004, but it's gotten more popular lately because social media has exacerbated the issue. But if you don't know what FOMO is, it's this fear that if I'm not somewhere, I'm going to miss out on what's going on. Or it's this fear that that I'm going to miss out on this information or miss out on this opportunity or whatever it might be. It's a fear of what could or could not be. Now, all of us, in some form or fashion, we all struggle with a fear of missing out. If you don't think that's true, then I would ask you, what do you like or like to keep up to date with? Cut that out of your life for a month and see if you aren't afraid you're going to miss out the whole time. 
For some of you, if I were to say, don't watch a college football game or check scores for the next month, you would practically die. You would be like, are you kidding me? Like, but what if I miss a big play? What if I miss out on this? That's a fear of missing out. What, what, what if I miss this? For some of you, get, as it gets close to election week, if I were to say, don't check the news or any sources the week before the election or the week after the election, you would die because you need to know what's happening. You need to know what's going on. For some of you, if you got home today and turned off your phone and didn't turn it on again until next Sunday, you would be a wreck because, well, what if somebody needs me? Or what if somebody, it's this fear of what could or could not be. And all of us have this. All of us have this idea of, well, what if or what if not? My whole point in saying this is, y'all, we should have a holy, a spiritual fear of missing out on what God has for us. If we are in Christ, friends, God, before you ever existed, created plans for you, works for you as his masterpiece. What greater fear is there than missing out on those plans? What greater fear is there than living out how we want to live and getting to the end of our life and saying, you know what, I did everything I ever dreamed, but I missed out on my purpose. I did what I wanted, but maybe it wasn't what he wanted. Friends, our first thought should be a fear of missing out on Christ, missing out on a relationship with God, and then secondly, it should be missing out on living for the works in which he created us. You are his masterpiece if you are in him, and he has works prepared for you that you would walk in it. Do you realize that God has a will for your life? 100% he absolutely does. Which leads to the second question. Do you realize that you can know God's will for your life? Do you realize that you can know God's will for your life? Now, I understand for many that may seem like a silly question. But I talk to people enough to know that people struggle with this idea, does God have a will for my life? One. But then even if they believe that he does, struggling with this idea can I really know what God's will for my life is? Well, I want you just to think logically. Why would God create us a new creation in Jesus for good works that we might walk in them, but then not show us the very works he wants us to walk in? It wouldn't make sense, right? You see, God doesn't just create us as new creations in Christ. He creates us that we should walk in the works that he's given to us. So the simple answer is, God absolutely wants you to know what his will is for your life specifically. He wants you to know that. And while that's a simple answer, it's not always the easiest or just as simple to know how God guides us in his will. I think Philip Yancey helps us a lot here on the various ways that God guides us. He says it like this, God guides us in subtle ways. By feeding ideas into our minds, speaking through a nagging sensation of dissatisfaction in our lives, inspiring us to choose better than we otherwise would have done bringing to, to the surface hidden dangers of temptation, and perhaps by rearranging certain circumstances, the point is that God works out to show us his will in numerous ways throughout our life. But he absolutely wants to show us how. He wants to show us what his will is for our life specifically. But before we get to that question of, okay, how can you figure this out? How can you know it? There's one more question you need to ask before you ask, how can I know God's will for my life? And I think it's the most important one of them all. And the question is simply this, do you desire to follow God's will for your life? I want you to hear the question, think about the question, do you desire to follow God's will for your life? You see, ultimately it doesn't matter if you know his will or not, if you're not willing to follow, right? 
Ultimately, it doesn't matter if you know how you can find God's will if you're not willing to follow. Go back to this idea of the fear of missing out. Y'all, this is a problem that, that we struggle with more than I think we even know. You see, sin actually oftentimes originates from this very idea, this fear of missing out. And you're in my life even. Part of the reason we struggle with doing whatever God wants us to do is we fear we may miss out on something else. The reason we struggle with sin is we struggle with this idea, well, maybe what they say, what the world tells me is going to bring me happiness, maybe that really will, and I don't want to miss out on that. Maybe what the world says is going to bring me satisfaction. Maybe that really is what's going to bring me satisfaction. I don't want to miss out on that. This is what people tell me is fun. I don't want to miss out on that. Do you realize that FOMO, a fear of missing out, goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden? I want you to think about Adam and Eve. They're in the garden. God's will for their life is clearly spelled out. Cultivate and keep the garden. All of this is yours. Do with it whatever you will. Just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what is the devil's tactic? You're missing out. You see, if you eat the fruit, God knows you're going to be wise like he is. He doesn't want you to have that. Ultimately, the point of the serpent is he wants you to think you cannot trust God. Friends, this is the idea that we struggle with whenever we struggle with sin in our lives. It's struggling with, can I trust God's will is the best will? Can I trust God's way is the best way? Can I trust that what he has for me, his plans for my life, are better than any plans that I could ever come up with? Ultimately, whenever we ask the question, do you, will you follow him, whatever that may be, the question is, is do you trust him? Do you trust him or do you not? That begins with salvation. Have you repented and placed your faith in Jesus? Have you given your life to him? Have you come to a point where you say, God, I trust you about what you say about me and my sinful condition. I trust you in what you say about my way is not going to bring me joy that I'm looking for. I trust you whenever you tell me that if I repent and turn from my sin and place my faith in you, you will give me life and life abundantly. It begins with that. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? And can you say along with Paul, I love how he says in Galatians 2.20, y'all hear me quote this often. I think it's such an incredible verse for the believer. Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now that is a cry of every person who's a believer. I've been crucified. I've died to my old self, my old will, my old desires, my old way, and I've come alive in your way. Now the life I live, I live by faith. I trust you. That doesn't mean that you always trust. It doesn't mean you never struggle with that. But it does mean that you seek to live God's way, live the way that he calls you to live. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Have you repented and given your life to Christ? I ask you, have you trusted him? Friends, if you haven't trusted Christ with your life, it doesn't matter what any other will is for your life. It begins there. Secondly, I would ask you, okay, now, if you're a follower of Jesus, do you desire God's will above your own? Do you desire God's will above your own regardless of what it is? Do you want what he wants with you in your life regardless of what that is? You know, our heart's desire should be that whatever God's will and his desire is, it matches up with ours. But I think you and I know the thing that makes that difficult is you and I are in that equation, right? Oftentimes we say, God, we want your will for our life, but whenever God starts to work in our life, all we do is whine and complain about it, right? I've been there. 
Or we say, God, I want your will for my life, but then we say, no, not that. It's kind of like, you know, the big debacle of every single family. I don't care what family you grew up in or where you're at. Every family has this main key core struggle. There should be a Bible verse on it. And it's simply this. Where should we go eat tonight? Right? All of you know that. If you've ever been in the vehicle with other people, that question can start some serious issues, right? You also know if you're just with one other person and someone says, hey, let's go eat wherever you want to go eat. You say, okay, fine, let's go to Taco Bell. Oftentimes they'll go, ah, I'm not really a fan of Taco Bell. Okay, that's fine. Well, let's go to La Casino. Ah, Las Portales is better, right? Like you, you'll say like whatever you want to do, that's what we'll do. Wherever you want to go eat, that's where I want to go eat. But then we have these stipulations. Friends, don't we do the same thing with God? God, I want your will in my life. Have your way in my life, but please don't let me go through that. Please don't take me this direction. Please don't let this happen in my life. You know, ultimately, the question comes back to, do we trust Jesus or do we not? Do we trust God with our everything or do we not? Do we recognize that God will bring us through all sorts of things, good things and bad things, to make us the people he wants us to be? Do you realize that this is even what worship is? Worship simply looks like saying, God, I understand that you have a plan for me. You've created me for good works. Show me your will. I'll follow whatever that is. That's what it looks like to worship God, and I'll prove it to you. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. These two verses are referenced often because they are rich, to say the least. Romans itself, as the doctrinal thesis, if you will, of the New Testament, is just rich in its entirety. But in Romans chapter 12, Paul says something that is really interesting. And I think it's really helpful as we think about this idea of God's will in our life and are we willing to follow it. Paul says it this way, Romans chapter 12, in verse 1, he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, what does it look like to worship Christ? What does it look like to say Jesus is the Lord and Savior of my life? It looks like this, being a living sacrifice. What does it look like to worship God is to say, God, my life is yours. Whatever that means, wherever that means, however that means, whenever that means. That's what worship is. That's what it looks like to trust God, saying, God, I am yours. Yo, Paul says something. He makes up something here that doesn't even make sense. He says, be a living sacrifice. I don't know about you, but I've never found a sacrifice that stays living, right? It's kind of the nature of the sacrifice. What does a sacrifice do? It dies. So what's his point? Being a living sacrifice means every day you die to your desires, your wants your values, what, what you maybe think or whatever, and you come alive in Jesus. Every day you say, not my will, God, but your will be done. That's what worship looks like. And this is what God is creating as his masterpiece, people who want to follow him and know him. He wants us to live for the good works which he's created us for. Titus says it in chapter 2, verse 14, as he just finishes talking about the gospel. He says in Titus 2, 14, Jesus gave himself for us, to one, redeem us from all lawlessness, and two, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God wants to redeem a people who say, God, I'm here, I'm available, use me. Let's get it, let's go, right? 
This is what God wants. He wants people who recognize they've been created for good work. They've been redeemed for good works and to be zealous to live that out. That's why you have verses in the Bible like 1 Corinthians 10.31 that says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all of it to the glory of God. Friends, the life of a believer, everything in your life should be for one reason, to show people God's glory. To show them, yeah, I used to be this person, but because of Christ, I'm now this person. Every aspect of your life is an opportunity to bring glory to him. I love the way John Piper says it. And one quote from him, I'll have it for you on the screen. He he says it this way. He says, the aim of all human life in God's eyes is that Christ would be made to look as valuable as he is. Hear that again. The aim of all human life in God's eyes is that Christ would be made to look as valuable as he is. Worship means using our minds and hearts and bodies to express the worth of God and all that he is for us in Jesus. There is a way to live, a way to love that does that. Friends, just take that phrase. Your life as a follower of Jesus is meant to express the worth of God. Do you know that worship is really just two words that have come together? Worth-ship. Worship just means I ascribe worth to something. I ascribe worth to it. Through worship. Worthship. The way I live, I ascribe worth to it. This is what Piper's trying to say. This is what Paul is trying to tell us. With your life, you express your worth of Christ. So in other words, in the way you live your life, express the worth of Jesus. In the way you use your time, express the worth of Christ. In the way you steward your finances and your money, express the worth of Christ. How you are in the classroom, in the workplace, at home, express the worth of Christ. This is what you exist for. This is why you are here. Friends, if you are in Christ, you are the master work of God, created for this, for good works, that you should walk in them. The question is, is do you desire it? Do you desire God's will in your life above anything? You can't have his will and your own. You can't. Which leads to the fourth question. So one, do you realize that God has a will for your life? Do you realize that you can know God's will for your life? Third, do you desire to follow God's will for your life? Then fourth and finally, how can we know God's will? How can we know God's will? I'm going to break down and show you four ways that we can know God's will. But before we jump in, I'm going to tell you, before we even begin, you're not going to be impressed at what I have to say. Because here's the truth. Most of us know fairly clearly how we can know the will of God. Our issue isn't an issue of knowledge. Our issue is is, is an issue of action. Friends, think of it this way. If you applied everything you knew about God's word today to your life right now, how different would your life be? Think about that. If you could apply everything you knew about God's word to your life right now, how different would your life look? My guess is you'd probably be more patient more selfless, you probably love God more, you probably love others in front of yourself more, you'd look very different, right? You see, our issue most of the time is not an issue of what we know, it's an issue of what we do. As I've heard Robbie Gowdy say, he says, most believers are, 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 are instructed beyond their obedience. In other words, we know a lot, but our struggle is putting that into practice. And friends, this is the point that I'm going to say as we walk through these four ways. These are timeless and true, absolutely, but I want you to think about them. This is how you can know God's will for your life. This is how you can discern what he wants for you. And the first way is simply this, through knowing and obeying his word. How can you discern God's will for your life? Through knowing and obeying his word. 
Again, Romans chapter 12. You look at verse 1, what Paul is saying is submit your will to the will of God. Lay your life down on the altar. I'm a living sacrifice. Do with me what you will. And the next one, he says, submit your mind to the word of God. Notice how he puts it in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world. In other words, do not be molded to this world. Do not let your life look like this world. Do not let your mind be molded to the world that is around you, the ways of the world that are around you. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern, notice what? What is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect? So that again, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Y'all, truthfully, our natural minds don't think the way that God does. We don't. Our natural minds don't reason the way that God does. It's even this way. I've heard people say before, I'm a warrior. My family's full of warriors. I'm just a, war- a warrior. Well, friends, there's never been a day in existence where God has worried for even a second. You say, man, I just don't know what to do. God's never come up to that situation before. I'm just confused. God's never had that happen to him before. I'm struggling. God's never had that happen to him before. He is certain. He knows. He is sure. And what he says is come to his word and learn from the one who is sure. Learn from the steadfast rock of life that is Jesus. You need your mind to be conformed to the word of God. Now, this is why I love the analogies of the Bible aren't said the way they are just because it's an analogy that they came up with. That's why I would tell you, pay careful attention whenever you read the parables of Jesus Pay really close attention because you're getting a story that originated in the mind of God. Think about that. A parable is a story that originated in Jesus' mind to share a specific purpose. They're diamonds. They're incredible. But also think of other things that he did. He talks about the Bible like it's the word of God, calling it the bread of life. Jesus doesn't say that just because it's a neat analogy. Jesus says it because he says, in the same way that you think about food multiple times a day and seek to eat multiple times a day, this is like the bread of life. In other words, you need this. That's why Jesus says, whenever he's tempted by the devil, Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, the will of God is most clearly given to you and to me through the word of God. And hear me, if we don't seek out God's will in his word, what he's already revealed, why would he reveal us anything else? Hear that again. You can pray all day long and ask God to show you his will, but if you're not seeking to look for it in his word, which he's already given you, 66 books, saying here's my will for you. If we're not willing to go there, why would he show us anything else? If we're not going to the compass that he's already given us to navigate life, why would he show us anything else? Think about that. God shows us clearly in his word. We talked about this last week. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. It is from his mouth. Scripture is given to guide us. Psalm 119.105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word is clear on so many areas. Y'all, it's incredible as you walk through it. You have questions about why you're here? The answer is in there. How you need to grow in Christ? It's in there. You need to be devoted to the body of Christ. You need to make disciples. Love God, love others. He gives you principles on marriage, on holiness, on your identity, on your integrity, on your workplace, on how to find a path in life. He gives you direction on stewardship as we even begin talking about this. Now, the Bible's clear, talking about a tithe of 
But in the New Testament, he says, give cheerfully, give joyfully, give sacrificially. Those are in the Bible that they call us to. Friends, the will of God is laid out so clearly in his word. The question is, is will we read it? We meditate on it. Will we treat the Bible like it really is the bread of life? If you want to know God's will for your life, that's where you have to start. That's the beginning spot. Saying, God, I know you've already given us your word. Help me listen. Help me see. But then secondly, we have to understand that not just knowing it is the key, but obeying it. The Bible is not a book of information. It's a book meant for transformation. It's not meant for you just to learn it and know all about it. That's great if you have a lot of Bible knowledge. But Hebrews 5.14 tells us that a mature believer is not based on what they know. It's based on what they do. You can know all about the Bible, but the question is, is what does your life say? Does your life say that you know it and you obey it? If you want to learn how to pray, one of the best things to do is go to the Bible. It teaches you it pretty clearly. Specifically, go to the writings of Paul. Paul writes and he prays, and after I read some of his prayers, I'm like, man, i got to go back to the drawing board. I don't even know what I'm talking about compared to this guy, right? Like, it's a great thing to look at, just kind of as a paradigm of how to begin praying to the Lord. Well, I love one specific prayer he has in Colossians chapter 1. He's writing to the church of Colossae. He's never met them before. He's only heard about them. And in the first eight verses, he just goes over and above just saying, man, I've heard about the work that God's done there. I've heard about all that God is doing among you, and I'm so thankful for you. And then he prays for them. And I want you to notice how he prays. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, he says it this way. He says, and so from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may, one, be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So what's his prayer? His prayer is that they be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But notice he doesn't stop there. Verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and what's the result? And increasing in the knowledge of God. You look at how he writes this, it's a circle. He says, I pray that the will of God, through you would grow in your knowledge of God, that his will would be made known to you, that you'd walk in it to please him, to bear good fruit, and then you will increase in the knowledge of God. In other words, he's saying what God has already given you, as he gives you his will, walk in it, and God will show you even more. God will guide you even more. God will lead God and direct you even more. Knowing and obeying will lead us to a point where we can even discern God's will more readily. Think of it this way. The more someone knows someone else, the more you can understand who they are in their heart, right? So me as a kid, I remember very early on, I knew what my parents' values were. Very early on, I knew what the rules were. And I'm telling you, there were certain instances in my life where I had opportunities in front of me. I didn't have to say, hey, let me go talk to my parents and see if they'll let me do that or not. I knew very clearly my parents would not let me do that because I knew what they would desire. I knew what they would want. I knew what their will was for me. Friends, it's the same way with Jesus. The closer you get to God, the more you know him, the more you obey him, the more in your life you can know what God's will is because you know him. You've walked with him. I love the way one author says it, and I say one author because it's not included in the article. He says it this way, if we are walking closely with the Lord, And truly desiring his will for our lives, God will place his desires in our hearts. The key is wanting God's will and not our own. Friends, God has given us all of this to say, do you want to know what I have in store for you? It's right here. You want to know how I'm seeking to make you my masterpiece? It's right here. And you see earlier, he says that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. Look, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. 
But you and I both know there is nothing in life that is worth anything that is easy, right? If we don't want to go through hard times, then we're not willing to listen to God as he leads us through them. I love the way Chuck Swindoll says it. He says that trials in our life are merely gates that we have to go through to get to where God wants us to be. He uses hardship to mold us, to make us, to help us see things in ourselves that we didn't know were even there, right? So if we want to know his will in a situation, we go to God's word. But even more specifically, what about in a specific situation in your life? Can God guide you? Absolutely he can. And the last three are, in general, you can know his will, but this is even more specifically. You want to know what his will is in a specific situation? I would tell you these final three you definitely need to learn and practice. The second way that we can know God's will is through praying diligently and specifically. Again, this is not earth-shattering, I know, but through praying diligently and specifically. It is ironic, honestly, how many times in the Bible God simply says, Ask me. Ask me. You don't know what to do? Ask me. You have an issue? Ask me. You need direction? Ask me. It's amazing how much he talks about this one idea. Ask me. Come and talk to me. But he doesn't just say ask me. He says there's a way that you should ask me. And he gives a picture of a persistent widow who comes over and over again to an evil judge asking him, please take my case, please take my case, please take my case. Says finally, he's so annoyed with her, he finally gives a verdict on the case. He goes, if an evil judge knows how to give good gifts, then don't I know how to give good gifts? Come to me, persistently ask me. He said, be like someone who comes to somebody's house in the middle of the night and starts beating on the door until they open the door and let you in. And y'all know how much it would take to get you out of bed at 2 a.m., right? God says, come to me and keep asking me, persistently ask me. You know, I've often thought about what what would be one of the greatest things to have in life, just a comfort, it would be to have a personal chef. I've thought about this often, like how incredible would it be, no matter what time of day, simply say, this is what I want. I want a lobster with this side, this side, and this side, right? Like how incredible would it be at any time? Imagine if you could just order it from your phone right now and your personal chef just brings it to you which obviously not in here, which I did have somebody ask me one time what they would do if they ordered a, or what I would do if they ordered a pizza and got it delivered in the middle of the service, which I told them that they would get beat up by everybody else in the room, right? But, I, but the whole point is, what would it be like to have a personal chef who brings you whatever you want whenever you want it? You would light that person's phone up, right? Anytime you're hungry, anytime you have a need. You know, the Bible literally gives us this picture of how God tells us to relate to him. Not that he gives us everything we want, Instead, he says, I'll either show you what you need, trust me, or I'll answer you, I'll guide you, I'll lead you. Psalm 116.2 has been very influential in my life in regards to this discussion. The psalmist says, because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. He literally says, because I know that God is listening, I'm going to wear him out. Friends, this is the invitation that God gives us. You want to learn how to pray? Go to the book of Job. We don't typically think of that as a book of prayer. And oftentimes, some of the things that are said in it, we're shocked by. But Job had a relationship with God, and Job said whatever he was feeling to God. And you notice God never reprimands him. In other words, come and express yourself to God. Are you struggling? Go say it to him. Are you frustrated? Go say it to him. God is not a weenie. He can handle it. He says, bring it to me. Come talk to me. Express your desires. Ask him what would please him. Ask him for direction. 
Ask him in faith. Y'all, we have incredible Bible verses like James 1, 5 through 8. I want you to read it. Notice what James says. The brother of Jesus says, if any of you lacks wisdom, which in this point, everybody can raise their hand, right? Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James says two things very matter-of-factly. If you need wisdom, just ask. And when you ask, ask in faith, believing that God can guide you. Ask in faith, believing that God can give you wisdom. Do you hear what the Bible is saying to us, y'all? Any direction you need in your life, just come to him and ask specifically, diligently, continue to ask. The third principle, how can we discern God's will? Is through fasting, regularly, or periodically. Through fasting regularly or periodically. You'll all say, it's, it's incredible to me how little I knew about this discipline until I got to seminary. I really don't feel like I heard many people talk about it. And yet, do you know that fasting is mentioned over 70 times in the Bible? Fasting is done over and over again by God's people for multiple reasons. Whenever they need direction in something, whenever they recognize it, they don't know what to do. God has annual fasts for them that they would fast and in so doing be reminded of how great God is and how he can supply every need of theirs. You know, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says something very interesting. He says, whenever you give, give this way. There's not a person who would argue that as a believer, you're not supposed to give to the church, give to the body of Christ. Or if they do, they can't really go to Scripture and back that up. We say, okay, yeah, I know I'm supposed to give. The next thing he says is, when you pray, pray like this. And many of us know the Lord's Prayer, which he lays out in Matthew 6 right after. But do you know right after that, he says, when you fast, fast like this, which assumes what of believers? That we will fast. Jesus wouldn't say when you fast. He would say if you fast, if he wasn't expecting of us to do it. He says when you fast, fast like this. Friends, fasting should be a normal part of the believer's life. So what is fasting? Fasting is not a great weight loss scheme that has some spiritual thing tacked onto it. I understand you can do that for other reasons. But what is fasting? Fasting is willfully abstaining from food for the purpose of pursuing Christ. It is willfully abstaining from food for the purpose of seeking Christ. It's for a spiritual reason. Why should we fast? Why would the Bible seem to make it seem like we are supposed to do this? Let me rephrase that. Why would the Bible make it where we should do this? We are supposed to do this. Y'all, fasting shows us how needy we actually are. Many of you, over the course of this sermon, at some point maybe have felt your belly growl. The truth is, is there's not a person in this room who is struggling with hunger. I would assume that there's not anybody in this room struggling with hunger. Our stomachs remind us often, though, hey, you're used to eating at this time. Give me some grub, right? That's all that our stomach is. It's telling us you're used to eating at this time, so eat. We have reminders, our physical reminders that we need food, and if we don't have food, we will die. Y'all remember the first time I ever fasted. I was in seminary. I was convicted by this that I'd never done in my life, and I began just by skipping one meal. And I can remember about six hours in, I literally thought, Lord, just take me. Like, just take me. This is too much to bear. 
But really, we don't realize how needy we actually are. If we don't have food, we die. Do you realize how close you are to death? Like this close. We are not that great and grand. But whenever you fast and you realize, I am such a needy person, you're reminded there's never one single time where God's been in need. Fasting doesn't just show you that, that, that you're a needy person. It also shows us how spoiled we actually are. I know many people in the room have probably used the term hangry before, and I'm sorry if I'm about to kill that term for you. But I remember reading a book about this one time, because I used to say it often, I'm hangry. And the idea is simply this, whenever you get hungry, you get angry. Well, the truth is, is whenever you get uncomfortable, what's really inside of you actually comes out. That's why whenever you find yourself in a hard situation, you may say, man, I've never acted out in anger like that. Well, that's what's inside of you. You just didn't know it until you got shook. A toothpaste tube, you don't know what's inside of it until what? It gets squeezed. A Coke can, you're not scared of it if I just hand you a Coke can. If I shake it up real quick and then come to you and go to open it, you're going to do what? You're going to back off. You find out what's inside of someone whenever things get difficult, right? And what fasting does is whenever you remove food from your body, you realize really how spoiled your own stomach is, how spoiled you are to feeding your own flesh, your own belly. In Philippians, actually, Paul says this about a group of people saying their God is their stomach. And while we're comfortable, sure, we can put on a nice face, but what about whenever we don't feel the right way, right? What's inside of us eventually comes out. We find that our stomach will growl. Other things will happen. The question is, is in the middle of fasting, you have to ask, do I desire God's word like I desire a piece of bread right now? Do I see God's word as life or death as much as I feel like food in my stomach actually is? Fasting gives you a very clear reminder of how badly we need to be reminded of how badly we need God's word because we don't naturally. It also shows us how much we desire physical over the spiritual. It shows us that while Jesus says man does not live by bread alone but by God's word, it shows us very quickly oftentimes we're content just to live by bread alone. Friends, there's numerous other things you could walk through with fasting. I would challenge you to understand that fasting reserves time, energy, and resources normally given to an activity to pursue God and his will. And if you're looking for God's will in a situation, abstain from food for a meal and stop and just pray. Read a psalm. Go through his word. Seek his will. Say, do I desire God as much as I desire food right now? Now, for many, maybe some of you in here, you've never fasted before. I would challenge you to think about fast from one meal and just pray in the middle of it. Work up to where you do whenever I fast. I fast usually from dinner to dinner. So I skip breakfast and lunch of the next day. I'll eat at 6 or 6.30, and then I won't have that 10 o'clock snack that all of us know just about everybody has, right? Mine's usually cereal. I won't have that. I won't have breakfast the next day. I won't have lunch the next day. During those times, I'll pray. I'll express my need to God. Y'all, it just does something different. I can't really explain it other than it's what God's word tells us to do. And if you obey, it pays dividends. You find you grow closer to the Lord. You find, man, I need him more than I even realize. Maybe you should consider doing a 24-hour fast like that in regards to the stewardship campaign or some other aspect in your life that you're walking through right now. I would encourage you, think about it. Maybe you need to do it with a group. One of the things that me and my discipleship group did recently is we just met up here at the pavilion for lunch. And instead of eating at lunch, we just prayed together and prayed for each other. You can ask any of them afterwards. They're like, man, this is good. This is good. It does something to us whenever we cry out to God out of a feeling of need, which very rarely do we feel physical need. It's these to the fourth and final way that we can discern God's will, and it is through seeking wise counsel. Through seeking wise counsel. Y'all, we're not called to walk this life alone. 
And if you are like me, I can be blind to some pretty obvious things that are right in front of me at times. There can be some areas of my life that are complete blind spots. There can be things I'm struggling with that I think I'm fine with. Friends, we need people around us who love us enough to speak truth into our lives. Who are mature followers of Jesus. That whenever we go to them, they're people who know God's word. They don't just give us their opinion. They give us God's word. We need to have friends around us that help us as we walk through this journey of life. And don't just tell us a good word. They tell us God's word. This is what God says. This is what you need to hear right now. We need friends around us as we seek to discern God's will for our lives. Y'all, God has a will for our lives. He says if you're in Christ, first is to know him. And then if you know him, if you are in Christ, you're his masterpiece. He's got good works for you that you would walk in them. He wants you to know them. The questions are, do you desire to do whatever he calls you to do? Is your will his? And then lastly, will you seek him in the prescribed ways that he's given for you to seek his will? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much this morning, God, for your word. God, we thank you as we open it and we get to think about this topic of your will. What do you want in our lives? God, we thank you and praise you for the simple truth that you don't leave us by ourselves. God, you don't leave us just to guess how we're called to live. You don't leave us just to guess and think. God, you give us your very spirit inside of us who's the counselor, who walks with us through life. God, you lead us and guide us in so many ways. God, your desire is for us to walk in the walk, the path that you've given us. Father, help us be amazed and reminded of how great you really are. God, help us this morning. Wherever we're at, Lord, say, your will be done in my life. And God, help us walk in the ways you've called us to walk. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As the band begins to play, I just want to ask you several questions. Again, first and foremost, the question is, is are you in Christ? Do you know Jesus? Have you placed your trust in him for salvation? Have you repented of walking in your way, living your own way? Have you repented of the sin that you are guilty for? Have you placed your faith in Jesus who died to save you? As the Lord and Savior of your life, have you given your life to him? Friends, that's the first thing you must do. And you can do that this morning where you're seated, just by simply saying to God, God, I want to give my life to you. If you say, Merrick, I've placed my life in Christ's hands, I've given my life to him. I would say maybe this morning you just need to stop and think about the fact that God has prepared a path for you before you even existed. For some reason, we are so seldom amazed at God, right? We so seldomly stop and just say, wow, what? God, you're telling me, me, y'all? It doesn't matter what you've gone through, the bumps and bruises in your life. God says, you are my masterpiece. I'm working out my will in you. Maybe you just need to stop, be amazed, and just praise him for that. Third, I would ask you, do you desire to walk in the path of the Lord? Can you say, God, your will be done in my life, whatever that is? Can you say my life is yours? Friends, I would encourage you, we need to be reminded of this often. I got convicted of this heavily several years ago, and so I made a little change in my life that maybe you could be encouraged by. I started putting my phone on the ground for my alarm in the morning. And what I do is every single morning, whenever the alarm goes off, I get out of bed very quickly or else I'll start getting an elbow from my wife. Y'all know what I'm talking about. 
But every morning I have to roll out of bed, get on the ground, get on my knees and turn off my alarm. And while I'm down there, I say, God, today is yours. Actually heard that principle from Denzel Washington who says he puts his shoes under his bed so before he leaves the house every day he has to get on his knees and say, God, today is yours. Friends, we need reminders. We need reminders that today is God's. Do you want to be a part of that will or not? Do you desire his will for your life? And fourth and finally, maybe you need to ask yourself this morning, are you seeking God's will for your life, for your family? Are you trusting in him? Are you going to the prescribed ways of of the word, of prayer, of fasting, of fellowship. Maybe you need to make a commitment to do that this morning. As we stand and as he prays, me and Brayden will be down here. Maybe you want to come talk to us. Maybe you just want to stay seated. Maybe you want to stand and just praise God. Whatever you feel like doing this morning, let's stand together and do it.